trusting that God, He's so merciful, bows down His ear to hear our cries, and I'm trusting that He heard that prayer. And I need Him and you need Him. in more ways than we realize. And and He knows every way that we need Him, doesn't He? And He will tend to us. Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to read verses 24 through 28. And we'll be focusing our minds upon verses 27 and 28 in particular. Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, keep in mind that as you as you well know, but as you read, read, listen to Jesus, you you know, he he has he said that he must suffer many things, and be killed and be raised again the third day. So that hasn't happened yet, not specifically what he's talking about there, has not happened yet. He's saying these things before that ever happens. Uh, and and he's saying that knowing what's, so it's saying these things knowing what's going to happen. And all that follows, even the transfiguration, which we won't get to today, but all of that and and, and his second coming, which which he's going to talk about. All of that is is out in the future. He's talking about that now ahead of the very thing that he yet has to go through. In fact, if he didn't go through what he has said must happen, all of what he's saying here is really just mute. It's 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 it's, they're empty words. Uh, The end will be bleak for everyone. And, And so and so what he's saying here is true uh, in preparation for what is coming, and it's true for us ever since the resurrection and ascension. So just kind of keep that in mind, because when I, as I'm speaking, I may not, I may not remember to to say that. You just need to keep that in your thoughts as we proceed, because what he is saying here to these disciples is as true for you and me today as it was for them. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then... He will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So you understand from the words of Jesus that you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christian. In this world, if you do not deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. We looked at that last week. According to Jesus, there is no other kind of Christian. 
There are those today who like to classify Christians differently and say, well, you don't have to be a disciple. But that's not the message of Jesus. In these verses, Jesus is contrasting those who follow him and those who follow self and some other way. Now, remember, this is not a formula for meriting heaven. It's very important. If that were the case, none of us would go to heaven. Okay? That's not what's going on here. It is a call to follow Jesus no matter the earthly cost. A life characterized by a likeness to the selfless love and life of Christ. And there is a cost that comes with that. And you can't deny that. The Scriptures are full of this instruction. And we're going to see some of it this morning. And so in verses 25 through 27, you notice that each of those verses that follow verse 24 begin with the word for. And so there's a, there's a, that word for really is unpacking reasons for the statement that has just been made. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Which is exactly what will happen if you do not follow Christ. So Jesus is giving reasons for what he has said. Following Him means taking up a cross, which includes a willingness to suffer personal loss of comfort, ease, possessions. Now, you heard me say willingness. Even your health, and in some cases your life, martyrs are have been known all through Christian history, including the ones that Jesus is speaking to face to face here. These are losses for his sake, but losses for his sake become gain. And that's what he's saying. You're not the loser. You're the gainer. Identifying with him in his suffering changes your life now and forever. It re, it re, it re, orients you. When you come to know Jesus Christ, your life is reoriented. You see, man by nature lives for self, don't we? And we live for now. And by the way, this is true. I mean, even if you have been born again, you are you still have the flesh with you. And we still wrestle with this. We still struggle with self. And we still struggle with living with a vision that sort of gets captivated by now. And most most people simply do not give thought to the eternal nature of their never dying soul. Sometimes we can lose sight of that. Most are focused on how I feel now. There's a reason why medications, pain medications, and every other kind of medication are so popular 
We don't like pain. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with not liking pain. That's not the way it was in the beginning, you know. There was no pain. There was no sorrow. There was nothing out of order, right? So if you don't like it, that's a good thing. And someday it's all going to be gone. But we're focused right now on getting relief from that. We're focused on what we can gain now. What serves me best now. And I'm the determining one about what serves me best now. And so we, and we don't even mind throwing religion on that if it looks like it serves me best now. What gives me relief now? Regardless of the consequences tomorrow, that's really, that's tomorrow. Give me pleasure now. You see, Jesus is confronting this short-sighted approach to life. And you get that in verse 26. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? That's short-sighted. To put your attention so much upon gaining, profiting in this life that you forget about the fact that you have a never-dying soul that you need to be interested in. He wants us to see what Moses saw. And this was obviously, I mean, this is amazing, but this is what the Scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith. And this is, this is what, this is why in my, in the prayer just struck me how, how I personally struggle with faith. I mean, the exercise of it. Consequently, I'm too often captivated by, by, by the moment, by what I see, what I feel, what I taste, the, the now. But by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, choosing, Rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ. Taking up your cross. The reproach of Christ, identifying with Him. Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For He looked to the reward Did you hear the word reward in our text in verse 27? And he will reward each according to his works. If we if we identify with Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, we are going to encounter resistance in this world because this world functions under the power of sin and Satan. And we have turned away from that. We've been delivered from that. And if we're following Christ away from that, there's going to be difficulty, isn't there? And so Jesus was preparing his disciples then and for the past 2,000 years to face life in this world as his followers. You cannot be united with Christ and not share with him in his sufferings. You, You just can't. But this is no bleak and dark prospect. It's certainly no evidence that our father doesn't love us. Any more than Jesus' suffering was evidence the Father didn't love Him. He always loved Him. 
And, and while we may struggle with, well, what was that thing on the cross? He turned his back, you know, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The love of the Father for the Son didn't even vanish at that point. But suffering is not easy, is it? You know, in some ways, I'm going to have difficulty uh, not being emotional this morning because, because I know what it is to suffer. And it's painful. And Jesus knows we need encouragement. But listen, suffering for the believer is not a dead end. Jesus assures us that glory is associated with our suffering in this life and especially in the promise of life that is to come. Now, I'm saying in this life and that which is to come. And hang on, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll be able to get to that and I'll be able to show you the two. But let me begin with this, and I'm not going to... We could take probably a series of, series of messages unpacking the various thoughts of suffering in Scripture. There's so much said about it. But this first point is simply this. Suffering is an unavoidable part of following Christ in this present world. It's, an un, it's unavoidable. If you're going to follow Christ, take up His cross, Jesus said, and follow Me. Now, this doesn't mean that you're always suffering. Or I, Maybe I'll say it this way. There are degrees to suffering. There are different kinds of suffering. And it's not that you're always hunkering down in a bunker waiting for the next bomb to go off. The bomb of suffering. That, it's not Every day is not like that. But it is always possible as you follow Christ, it's always possible that you will suffer. And he's not speaking of suffering that is common to all in this broken world. Every, every single human on this planet suffers in some way. Some actually suffer in certain ways more than Christians so, Christian, you don't have a corner on suffering, but you do have a corner on suffering for His sake, for Christ's sake, for His name's sake. You see, there is suffering that is unique to the disciple of Christ, and that's, that's what we're dealing with here. He uses that language in verse 5, but whoever loses his life, that sounds like a form of, of suffering for my sake. We'll find it. This is suffering because of your identity with Jesus Christ and the choices that you make in following Him. You know that Jesus made it clear resistance and persecution would come to His followers. Right? I mean, I don't think we need to belabor that point. I could quote some verses here and you're familiar with them, but I'll just for sake of time move on. I think you know that Jesus says that. Not just once. Think about Jesus' own suffering for a moment. His own suffering and death was the result of speaking the words and doing the works of His Father. Think about that. Because you ask the question, we ask the question, well, why would we suffer? I mean, if we're being like Jesus, I mean, we're being selfless and we're loving and we're doing good to all men. Like, that's what Jesus did. Why, 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 why would we suffer? 
Well, why did Jesus suffer? Jesus loved like no other. And the result was misunderstanding. It was false accusation. It was reproach. It was reviling. And it was death, ultimately. And followers of Jesus have always experienced similar suffering, haven't they? And, and we? You know the New Testament disciples. And again, I'm not taking time to chase through the Scriptures to, to prove what I'm saying. I think you're familiar with this concept. And the examples that we see all over Scripture. But the New Testament disciples encountered hatred and conflict from the Jews and from the Greeks and from the Romans simply because they preached the message of Jesus. And they identified with Him as their Lord. And they didn't identify with Caesar as their Lord, which was demanded of them in that day. And it looked like they were going away from you know, King Moses, which they weren't really at all. They were following King Jesus, who was the fulfillment of Moses. And so they ran into trouble. And over the centuries and still today, established religions reject the exclusive message of Jesus' followers. Peter and Paul remind us that suffering as Christian as a Christian is normal. First, Peter 4, 12, beloved, don't, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't, don't, don't think it's strange. That, that's helpful to know. Because you may, you may be under this misconception, well, if I follow Jesus, everything's going to be soft and nice and plush and rich and health and wealth and etc., etc. There is a message that is being proclaimed like that today. Which is absolutely foolish because those who proclaim it don't experience it. Or they may experience some of the, the, the wealth. But every single one of them have problems and difficulties in their life, even if they're unregenerate. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul says he speaks of his own suffering and his own persecutions and afflictions that came upon him. And he says, yes, but he did say in all out of all these, the Lord delivered him. Oh, what a precious truth that is. The Lord does deliver us out of all of those. And but he says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, now brethren, we're not activists. We're not trying to stir the world up against us. We're not we're not out there trying to invite some sort of persecution upon ourselves. But as we speak and live as ambassadors of Jesus in this world, in our everyday life, we're going to face resistance and ridicule or more from society, from family, friends who object to our message and object to our life in Christ. Why don't you run with us like you used to run with us? You can find that in First Peter chapter 4. And they, and they mock you and they revile you. What's wrong with you? Why don't you, why don't you live life? Have you, ever, have, you ever, have you ever had anybody tell you that? Why don't you give up that religion? Curse God. Give up on that. And enjoy life with us. Don't you remember the fun we used to have? You know, that, that sort of, that's a form of suffering. 
You see, suffering for Christ's sake may not be primarily physical, or, or at least it isn't for most of us. That is where we're, you know, we're threatened with our very life, physical life. But oh, how we do suffer internally with sorrow and grief of various forms for Christ's sake. Have you ever been vexed in your soul over unrighteousness in this world? That's a form of suffering. That's a form of your suffering for Christ's sake because you are identifying with Him and it grieves you. And it doesn't only grieve you when you see it in all of society or in your family. It grieves you when you see inconsistency and sin in your own life. Yes, our identity is in Christ. And yes, we are saints. But it grieves us when we see that remaining flesh acting itself out in our lives. There's a form of suffering there. And there's heartaches. I was just speaking to someone yesterday about this. Heartaches over strained relationships with family or former friends because, because of choices you have to make that you once would have made differently, but now you're a follower of Christ and, and it creates tensions with family. Has that ever happened with you? A form of suffering? Suffering as faithful disciples of Christ in this world cannot be avoided. But knowing the suffering of His followers, Jesus loves us. And knowing the suffering that His followers would face in this world, then, for, for, those, for these disciples that He's talking to, and that, you know, they, they were in the dark. We're not in the dark like they were. They, were, they, didn't, they didn't really know what was coming. We know because we're on the other side of it, right? We have 2,000 years of history. Christian history. But our beloved Savior encouraged them and also encourages us with solid reason to endure. He says, verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and when and then, and then, He will reward each according to his words. Assuredly, verily, assuredly I say to you, there are some standing here right now, those to whom he, were talk- he was talking, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man. Not see Him coming in the glory of His Father with His angels, but see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Following Him, you will not be disappointed your present suffering will end, just like His did. Unless, and I'm sort of jumping ahead here a a bit, unless you think of Him right now, remember what He said to Saul of Tarsus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so there is a sense in which He is still Feeling the infirmities, feeling the things that happens to his people, and that will end. But we will enter into his glory with him and because of him. And so let's think about this. Sharing his glory in his, that's his promised reward in this life and forever. It's a guarantee. 
He's when he says, for the Son of Man will come, he's putting his name on it. Right? He's guaranteeing this. This is going to happen. He assures his disciples that when they suffer for his name's sake, when you suffer for his name's sake, he is not ignoring you. He is not neglecting you. That's not why it's happening. He sees what's going on. Our suffering for his name matters to him. He takes it personal. Verse 27. Jesus is looking to the end of the age. He's looking past his own suffering in this, in this life, his own personal suffering, death, resurrection, resurrection, ascension. And he's viewing, he's going all the way to the second coming in verse 27. We'll come back to that in a moment. But in verse 28, he says that some standing there would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom before they died. What's he talking about? What does he mean when he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's talking about a manifestation of his kingdom or royal power. It helps to think of kingdom that way. Not a geographical kingdom, but royal power. It would be seen, manifested. Now, what happened six days later? The transfiguration, right? And so, certainly that fits what Jesus is saying here, because there were some, three, who did not taste death. They were alive six days later, and they saw that manifestation. I, I, I find it a little difficult to say that's exclusively what Jesus means by what he is saying here. And we're going to say a little bit more about that in, a, in another message. But I believe... That Jesus is pointing forward in verse 28 to something that the transfiguration was pointing forward to. And I do believe that it did point to the consummation of the kingdom when he comes in the end. But it also, I believe, points to that manifestation of his royal power or his kingdom that occurred at Pentecost. Because some of them standing there. We're alive. And they saw the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. They witnessed the expansion of His kingdom in the world. They, they were witnesses of it. And remember what Jesus told His disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. I want you to stay here. I want you to stay. I want you to stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. I want you to gather together, pray, wait. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And then you would be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the world. And so when the Holy Spirit was sent forth from the risen, ascended Christ, Peter acknowledged the kingly rule of Jesus. Listen to these words in Peter's message, Acts 2, verse 32. Through 36, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. They are, Jesus said, there are some standing here that shall not taste 
dead till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And some will argue, well, the Son of Man didn't come. Well, didn't He? He is. He is the one who ascended and seated at the right hand of His Father. And what did the Father give to Him? And He sent forth the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? He is, he's called the Spirit of Christ. In fact, Jesus said to His disciples, I will come to you. Remember that? I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. So Peter goes on and says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then First Peter chapter 3, verse 22, speaking of Jesus after His resurrection, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to Him. And I believe that this is what, at least in part, I believe, as I say, there's the fulfillment of it in the consummation of the age, which we'll get to in verse, in verse 27. But this is what Daniel is referring to in the vision that he had. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came, not from, He came to the Ancient of Days. Does that sound like the ascension of Christ? Does that sound like when He departed, He departed from them in the clouds? It says He will come again in like manner as He went away. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This, this one who humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross, and was raised and he ascended, and, and the Father gives to him, you see, this authority, this power was given to him. He receives it from his, from his Father. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So where is Jesus right now? Right now, He is ruling over all things with all authority. By the way, have you ever seen Him? You understand how significant faith is here as we are speaking this morning? Faith needs to lay hold of these realities. Because we can talk about these things until the sun goes down today, but if you don't believe them, of what value are they in your own life? It doesn't mean they're not true. But you need to receive them. Jesus is right now ruling over all things with all authority as the King of a kingdom of disciples who are presently identifying with Him in His suffering. Do you hear that? He has suffered so that we don't have to suffer what He suffered. But as we identify with Him, we also are involved in suffering that identifies with Him. And He's seeing that. 
He's seeing it. Now, Jesus is not saying you are on your you are on your own until I come in future glory. And I hope I'm not making more of this than I should, but this is how I see 20 verses 27 and 28 fitting together. Verse 27 is the ultimate, the consummation It's the end. But what about until the end? Is Jesus saying you're on your own until I come So hang in there? Do your best. Pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Just hunker down. And in the end, I'll come get you. No. The Son of Man is right now very much with us in our lives and in our suffering. What did He say in Matthew 28? I am always with you. I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. Would you go over to First Peter? First Peter, in chapter four. And I'm just touching upon these thoughts here that I trust the Holy Spirit will help us to digest more fully as we think about them, as you think about, as I continue to think about them. In First Peter, chapter four, I think Peter is making this point. You know, First Peter is a book about suffering. And so he says, Beloved, I quoted verse 12 before. So verse 13, but rejoice to this to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, now I believe that's talking about verse 27. That's the end. When His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, you might argue, and I'm not going to argue with you if you argue this way, that it, where there is a, a revelation of the glory to your own mind and heart now, there is that result of gladness and it, with exceeding joy in your soul even now. But that fluctuates. That, that, that's, that's up and down. That, that's not permanent. We get foretastes of that now. But notice what he says in verse 14. If you are reproached or reviled, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, blessed are you. The old King James says, happy, which is another way to translate the word. Happy are you. Happy are you? I mean, really? When you're reproached, when you're insulted? But it's important if it's for the name of Christ, not just if you are insulted or reproached because of your boneheadedness or you have brought it on yourself. It's for the name of Christ, because somebody has has seized your your commitment to following Christ as a ridiculous commitment. Why in the world would you would you follow him? And they mock you. To which really in that moment you can respond I suppose with a sense of happiness and blessedness because they notice. They actually notice. They actually see it. And you know where this thing is going. And so there is a sense of of gladness. But here's the thing. He gives a reason why you can be happy or blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
I don't know if that's capitalized in your Bible. I don't know all translations what they do. But spirit there, you know, in Scripture could be capitalized and it could not be depending on the context. It's the same word in the Greek. But it should be capitalized. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. His spirit is with you. Rest. Did you see that? rests upon you. From His glorified presence with His Father. You see, this is the point I'm making. Jesus isn't in Never Never Land in some dark hole in eternity out there somewhere. Ignoring and forgetting all about you and not knowing what you're going through. No. The Spirit of glory and of God, the triune God, is in fact... Very aware. And that His Spirit rests upon you in your suffering. And, he, and that is Christ rests upon you. And there's a sense in which the Father is resting upon you in the person of the Holy Spirit who is resting upon you. You see, this then is why you're blessed when you're reproached for the name of Christ. He sees and He knows and is identifying with you as you identify with Him. He is with you now. Now, is that helpful? Does that help you? Does that help me? It should, shouldn't it? Again, if faith, if faith connects and, and then to be able to, who said that earlier? You know, when we cry, Abba, why do you cry Abba Father? Why? And, and when would you cry Abba Father? Well, anytime, really. But when you're sensing, when you're feeling, when you're under some pressure of perhaps persecution or suffering of some sort. Abba, Father. And where does that cry come from? Yeah. It's the spirit of adoption that has placed within you that sense of connection with your Father and the Son. You see how that works? Now, you're crying, Abba, Father, because you have a need. And by the way, in Romans 8, where you find that in the very, what, next verse or two verses after, you'll find the idea of suffering with Christ. It's connected. It's linked. And if you suffer with Him, you will also be glorified with Him, you see. But you don't have to wait for that connection with Him. You have that connection right now. But now you are crying out in your, you know, we're in foreign soil, we're in enemy territory, and so and so we're we're having this need of crying out to him. And and he's reigning and he he's seated upon his throne. That's part of what is meant by him coming, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And he will eventually come in fullness. Going back to our text in verse twenty seven. Jesus assures us this is not going to continue. This need, this cry need because of the suffering 
that we encounter in this life. It's going to come to an end. And Jesus assures us that He's coming again. And it will be a day of amazing glory. And all things will be made right. And by the way, that's part of our hope. That's what we live with. His glorious coming. You do know, don't you, that that is a theme that runs through the New Testament for our encouragement. We sang about it in the first hour. That's what I was connecting with. A couple of verses of the hymns we sang talked about that coming of Christ and how that should be an encouragement to our souls unless unless all we see is right now and we think this is where I had somebody tell me one time. This was a Christian, or professing Christian. And they said to me, well, what more do you want? Don't you have everything right now that you want? That you need? Because you have Christ. And you see, it's easy for us to, to go that way and say, well, we have everything we need in Christ, so, so just let this life continue. But this life is filled with incompleteness in the experience that we have in Christ. And the Bible points us forward. Jesus points us forward to His second coming. And so He says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. His first coming was lowly. But His coming again in the glory of His Father with His angels is going to be very different. He will come in the full display of who He is. As God-man in relation to His Father, He says, He says the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father. There will be, there will be, the, 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 there will be, there will be no veiling. And I know there's a sense in which the veil is taken away in the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter three. But there is still that which we do not see clearly and fully. But we will then, all of the universe will then see the glory of the Son in relationship to the Father. Accompanied by a great host of angels. He says, with His angels. With His angels. And you read in Daniel chapter 7, if I'm correct in my understanding of Daniel chapter 7, I think it's verses 9, maybe verse 10. It talks of over a hundred million angels there. 10,000 times 10,000. And then another group. And these have all anticipated this full manifestation and vindication of the Son and His brethren. We are His brethren. Believer. Paul encourages suffering saints really throughout his writings with this particular coming. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1, you read these words. Which is most evidence, which is, excuse me, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. 
Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. By the way, I am thankful that there are those who may trouble me now. That God will yet call by His grace like Saul of Tarsus. Remember, the one that's writing those words was a troubler of God's people. A persecutor. And God turned him. He is yet doing that. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us. When? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. And to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. And so back to our text, Jesus is giving general truth here about his second coming. He doesn't unpack all the details about his second coming. There are more details that will come in the book of Matthew, and some of which, if you were to ask me to unpack those, I would probably stumble all over some of them because I, I don't understand it all yet. Maybe I will by the time we get there. But this Jesus, the Son of Man, will come again. And He will come again as judge. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, that He will judge the secrets of men, of the hearts of men. And in fact, in John chapter 5, and verse 20, I think it is, He says the Father has given all judgment to the Son. The Son will be the one. Acts chapter 17, He who was raised from the dead will judge. Jesus Christ will be the judge in that day. The Son of Man. And He's going to come as judge to reward. What's He going to do? He will reward each according to His works. I don't know what you're hearing when you read those words. And I think there's more than one thing to hear. And I'll touch on a couple of them. But I can tell you this. These words are not a threat to the true disciple of Christ. These are encouraging words. Jesus is not speaking these words to discourage you, Christian. He's not speaking these words saying, you better ante up and get your life in order because judgment's coming. That's not the point he's making. The one that you have followed and for whom you have suffered is going to reward you on the other side of your suffering. He's going to reward each according to his works. And the works here, I believe, are specifically related to what he has said back in verse 24. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, following him. You will be judged according to your works, according to your life. By the way, it's interesting the word works is translated works, but it's actually singular in the Greek. 
And so the idea is, is the, the picture of your life. Not so much every single detail, but the tenor, the direction, the characterization of your life. But you see, you're going to be judged according to your works. There's no question about that. But if you have the love of God in you. And if you have the love of God in you, you have it because God has put it there. And if you have the love of God in you, your life is characterized by works that fit a follower of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, you have nothing to fear in judgment. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 1. I keep referring back to 1 Peter. It is, a, I think, a companion to the passage that we're dealing with because Peter does talk so much about really what he learned from Jesus on the subject of suffering. In fact, we'll be referring to Peter when we talk about the transfiguration. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, notice beginning at verse 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, Rest your hope fully upon your own works that are going to be brought to light the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is that what it says? No. Hope fully upon the grace. You are going to encounter grace, Christian. That is to be brought to you just like, just like grace came to you in life, it's going to greet you in the resurrection. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, does that mean that you can live in your way you please? You just don't worry about it? Just sin all you want? No. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. That's not a frightening thing for the child of God. And then verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who can call upon the Father? Those who have the spirit of adoption. Who know Him as their Father. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work? And remember, that judgment is going to be in Christ, through Christ. Conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. And so, if you read that verse alone, you might say, well, I better be scared to death about what's coming in the day of judgment. That is not what... Peter is saying that's not what God says to his children. That's not what Jesus says to those who are his true disciples. You do not have to live your life with this sense of afraidness of God, the afraidness of the judge who will judge you according to your works. Well, how do you know that, preacher? Well, keep reading. You notice. The sentence keeps going. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Do you hear that? That is the foundation of everything, of every 
of everything about you in relationship to God. You are washed. You are cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so, for the believer, every work is cleansed by His blood. We have no works of righteousness except what is produced from our union with Jesus Christ. If you have any works that are going to stand out in that day, it will be works produced because of your union. It'll be the fruits of righteousness that come by way of Jesus Christ in your life. Colossians, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 1. And so John Newton wrote, Be not afraid, you who have fled to Jesus for refuge. He, your Savior, will be your judge. And He Himself will, with strict justice, overrule every charge Against you. But Christian. The business of your life is important to Jesus. He sees. And in the context back of Matthew chapter 16. He sees the suffering that he is calling you into as he calls you to be his follower. He sees that. He sees that. He sees. What you are. Enduring, really, as you identify with Him. And when He comes in judgment in the glory of His Father and ours, you will know experientially what you have laid hold of by faith. His promise is true. He's going to reward you according to your works that have been worked out in your union with Jesus Christ. Now, if you are not in union with Jesus Christ this morning, you also are going to come before Jesus as your righteous judge. And this very same language is used in Romans chapter 2. I want to read these verses. This expression, and then he will reward each according to his works, is the very same expression that Paul uses in Romans chapter 2. In relationship to believers and unbelievers, beginning in verse six, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor and immortality. See, that's describing one who is born again. This is what you seek. You, this is what you desire. But to those who are self-seeking. Sounds like the one Jesus said, he says, deny yourself. But the one who is self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. You're living in rebellion, still bound by sin, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. One thing we will know in that final day is that God is a righteous judge. That there is no partiality with Him. And He will judge according to the perfection of who He is. And by the way, that is completely in harmony with who He is. God is love. It is not a contradiction of that. It is an expression of who He is. 
I don't see that to be the primary point of our text, going back to Matthew chapter 17, or excuse me, chapter 16. But it does seem, because of the things Jesus has said in verses 25 and 26, and verse 27, that we need to at least introduce that thought. But the primary thought is the encouragement that Jesus is giving to His disciples. Who is Jesus speaking to? Who is he speaking to here in verse 24? It says, if anyone desires to come after me. That's who he's speaking to. You see, that final day has not yet come. It is coming. That that day, that that when the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and that's going to be a glorious day for the disciples of Christ. It has not yet come. It's going to be a horrific day for those of you who are not believers following Christ. He will reward each according to His works. But what is He saying to us in this passage and today? He is saying, follow Me. Follow Me. Even if it means suffering, follow me. It will be worth it all. It will be. The early New Testament disciples were willing to endure suffering for Christ's sake because they really believed that their suffering was temporary. And they believed that it would all end in eternal glory. We read it earlier, didn't we? In 2 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Remember, Paul has just talked about dying, dying. And he's talked about the, the suffering and the difficulty as he engaged in ministry. Why, why would you do that, Paul? And why would others join you in doing it? Why would you live that way now? Therefore, we do not lose heart. Why? Because we understand something, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are Eternal. I want to read one other portion as we come to a close. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Because I'm asking this question why would anybody follow Jesus? Why would you follow Jesus? Why would I follow Jesus if suffering is connected with following him? Hebrews chapter 10. And Jesus is giving us the answer. And those early disciples and disciples ever since have laid on to this same hope, laid hold of it in faith. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. How could they do that? Knowing 
that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. He will reward you. There is recompense for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For you see, there are some who don't continue. You remember Demas? Why did Demas depart? He loved this present world, didn't he? He loved this present world. Don't make that choice. Don't lose your soul over a brief season of worldly pleasure. Jesus is saying to you, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And Christian, when you are discouraged, and I know there's other things that can be said. This is not the only message about bringing encouragement to us, but this is one message. When you are discouraged by suffering, and you're tempted to turn around, or you're tempted to walk away, or you're tempted to deny Jesus to avoid suffering, would you look unto Jesus? Would you just look unto Him? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. If you're, if you're identifying with Him, you do the same thing. Endure the cross. It didn't, doesn't sound like it's something. It's not desirable, but you'll go through that. Despising the shame. But there is a, a joy. A joy. And an expressible joy. An unending inexpressible joy. And full of glory that is, to, that is promised to every single disciple of Jesus. And that's experienced in part now by faith as the Spirit of glory rests upon us. But it will be experienced in fullness when our beloved Savior comes again. So don't turn back. Rejoice. Your suffering is only for a time. And what's it doing? It's, it's working in you. Far and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Would you lay hold of Him? By the way, I believe. Now, some You may argue with me over this one. But I believe that the great reward that you are going to be receiving in that coming is entering in to the fullness of His glory with Him, the triune God, Father, Son, and just like Jesus prayed in John 17. That's going to be the fullness of the reward. Now, there may be other ideas that can be attached to that, but there's nothing that's greater than that reward. And that's Something that delights the heart of a child of God who knows the Father through the Son. Father, I pray that You would bless.